This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and thanks again for tuning in to our show. Guys, we have another great episode for you this week. I know I say that a lot, but I really do mean it, and uh, this is another great one. We have Lindsay Thomas Jr. back on with the Quality Deer Management Association, or what we refer to as QDMA. So Lindsay was on before, uh, back in episode number 29. So we got him back on, though, and we covered some pretty cool stuff that we haven't talked about yet on this show. We talk about his Invasive Slam 2020. So a lot of guys have a sheep slam or a turkey slam. He has an invasive species slam where he targets all of these invasive species on his property. Pretty cool to hear about that, how to kill them, herbicide treatments, etc. Uh, next, we talk about growing season burning. So like prescribed fire, you know, in late winter um, when things aren't greening up yet, this is a little bit different. This is during the growing season when the conditions are right, burning, what the pros and cons are of that versus your normal prescribed fire. Pretty cool stuff there. And we talk about some uh, new initiatives that Brian and I are working on with QDMA, you know, try to help grow QDMA and and become, you know, better land stewards, deer stewards, and habitat managers uh, ourselves. And with you guys, we're going to take you along as we do that. So be sure to stay tuned, guys. Listen to it all the way through. Hear what Lindsay has to say. He's one of my favorite guests because he's such a great communicator. You know, that's what he does. He's been doing it forever. Um, I listen to him every chance I get. So, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Um, I'd like to thank the listeners for all your great reviews. You're leaving on iTunes and Spotify, uh, Facebook, and YouTube. I picked up 105 more decals today to send out. 
So uh, those of you who have not gotten a decal yet for leaving that review online, you will be getting one soon. Be sure to contact me and make sure you give me your address so I can send those out. Uh, I'd like to thank our customers for the land plan services. So I was going to thank our sponsors, but I meant to thank our customers first. So Brian and I have been working diligently on a bunch of land plans uh, for customers here in Michigan, a bunch of people in Michigan, um, Kentucky. we got a guy in Iowa we're working with. This is really starting to take off. So we're trying to make sure we give everybody the, the appropriate amount of time and focus to get you the plan for your property, how we would do it. And so, you know, we're already booking out a few months from now. We're just moving things on out to make sure we spend the utmost amount of time on the plans we're working on now. So if you guys are interested in that, check out habitatpodcast.com slash land plans. You'll see it at the top of our website there. If you're new to the show, everything we do is on habitatpodcast.com. We have hats on there, T-shirts, uh, sweatshirts, decals, all of our podcasts. Oh, and we just put up our first, call it a blog post, I guess. I'm going to call it a journal entry from the Habitat Journal. So if you go up there on the website, you'll see a new section from the Habitat Journal. The first one, the first post we have on there is from our friend Al Tomeshko, who's been on the show a couple times. He goes into the difference between hunting and habitat management and the mindset that comes along with each. Kind of, you know, makes makes you step back and think a little bit about why you're doing what you're doing on your property. So that's a pretty cool Habitat Journal entry by Al. Thanks, Al. Guys, check that out at HabitatPodcast.com. I'd like to thank Killer Food Plots for supporting us here at the podcast. Everybody, that's the type of seed we've been using. Well, I've been using it for at least five or six years now. Brian's on a couple year two or three with it. And uh, we are just impressed with Nick's quality and the information and the seed mixes that he comes up with over at KillerFoodPlots.com. Uh, don't forget, Habitat Podcast listeners get 10% off anything on the website. It's HP10% sign. So HP10%, make sure you use that when you order. That's a huge deal. You know, I know a buddy of mine, Brian, he ordered his uh, Border Patrol tonight for a farm we're working on here close to home. So he used a discount, and, I, you know, you guys should be using that too. That's what we got it for. So check them out at KillerFoodPlots.com. Bunch of great seed, high quality, good germination rate, and a bunch of cool mixes. And, you know, tell them the podcast sent you. And next, I want to thank 5-2 Outdoors for supporting this show. I know Dale's been working diligently down there on his property, getting ready for hunting this fall. Check them out at 5-2Outdoors.com. That's F-I-V-E-2 outdoors.com he's also on instagram and facebook he's just another great habitat manager like the rest of us and you might be seeing some things coming out of kentucky from dale soon so that's kind of interesting um he actually i think is going to have a new spot down there to hunt so if you want to hear about more from dale what he's up to come back and check him out on the podcast we had him on a few episodes back and also please check him out at five two outdoors.com all right i want to thank packer max HuntWise, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, and Stony Creek Realty for also helping us support this show. We love you guys, and thanks for coming back every week and helping us. And the listeners, love you guys even more. Thank you so much. Now let's get into it with Lindsey Thomas, Jr. from the QDMA. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have my co-host, Brian Hallbly, on the line. And a very special guest, the one and only Lindsay Thomas Jr. from QDMA. 
How you doing, Lindsay? I'm good, Jared. Wow, I'm the on, I'm the one and only. That is that's fantastic. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> well, How I don't know. Maybe you can verify that. Have you heard anybody else named Lindsay Thomas Jr. before? Never have. Never there have. You go. There you nope. go. <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you, Brad? Doing great, Jared. Just uh, trying to get caught up on some work around the house here now that we got a, a graduate and everything's been closed, so we're kind of just figuring we're going to have the party here at the house. So a lot of work to do in the next month. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how are you guys looking down there in, uh, in PA for things opening up these days? Our county just went to what they're calling green last Friday, so – uh, restaurants and everything open back up with um, certain restrictions, but uh, everything seems to be moving forward. That's good. And Lindsay, how about you down in Georgia? Yeah, we're you know we we're trying to open back up, or we have opened back up, um, and uh, trying to get things back to normal. You know, looking at the charts and the daily reports of new coronavirus cases. Um, We've flattened the curve. It's not going up anymore, but it's really not going down. We've kind of leveled, and I'm I'm kind of discouraged. I love to see it, you know, continue to get lower each day, and that's not quite happening yet. Um, so, you know, I went to we had a primary election today in Georgia. Took my daughter to vote for the first time, and uh, and that was. That was fun to be with her for her first time voting, but it was discouraging to see how many people there voting that today were not wearing masks. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm worried we're not we're not getting rid of this thing fast enough. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, we need to we need to curb this thing quick. I know here in Michigan we just started opening up restaurants. Uh, I believe it was yesterday, and um, people are kind of on and off with the mask thing if you go to the Home Depot or wherever. And a lot of people are still wearing them, uh, as am I. So it's trying to get it behind us. That's the most important thing. Yep, yep. Yeah, they've been wearing them pretty good. At, you said Home Depot. I was there yesterday, and I'd say, you know, majority of people had them on, probably 80%, 90% for sure. That's so good. Hopefully, hopefully most people are still are, and we'll we'll get ahead of this thing soon. Well, thank you, boys, for, for jumping on here tonight. I know we've had Lindsay on before in uh, episode number 29. Holy cow, I can't believe it was already that long ago. And uh, covered some C- CWD stuff. We covered QDMA and introducing new hunters, your quality whitetails magazine, and some low-budget habitat work. So if anybody hasn't heard that, go back to 29 and check out Lindsay there. But now, now we got you back, sir, and uh, I'm excited to have you. So thanks for coming on, and let's just start out. If people don't know who you are, where you're from, what you do, how about you tell them once more real quick so people can catch up? Yeah, I'm Lindsay Thomas, Jr. I'm Director of Communications for QDMA, the Quality Deer Management Association. Um, My department handles the magazine, the website, social media, email communications, all communications coming out of QDMA. Um, I'm a deer hunter. I live in Georgia. Uh, I love habitat work, so that's kind of what y'all and I have in common. And um, so episode, I was on 29 the first time. What episode number is this one going to be, Jeremy? Uh, this should be 83. 
wow, well, congrats on that for, <laughs> you know, uh, going to 83 episodes. That's fantastic. So I'm, I'm honored to be back again. Yeah, so thank you very much. A lot of a lot of time and, and work from, from Brian and I, and it's really just the listeners and, and guests like yourself uh, really really keep us coming back, and we just love talking Habitat, as you said. And, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to keep going on this thing, so who well, knows? It's good to see you guys focused on Habitat. So many people are interested in it, and, and uh, so it's good to, to have a podcast that's dedicated to that, and particularly you two guys that – you know, always got your hands in the dirt. I've, I've seen a lot of your social posts lately with all the food plot activity going on. So, uh, yeah, it's good to have you all doing this. And, again, congrats on, on 83 episodes. I'm, yeah, thanks for having me be, be on this one. Oh, you're more than welcome. Appreciate it. Speaking of people getting kind of into Habitat, are you finding that with your organization? Are you getting more people requesting information about Habitat, you know, throughout your daily maybe social media or the magazine, or, or anything like that, because it seems like more and more people are, are intrigued by this, you know, managing your, your ground. Always. I mean, that that's always been a, a, one of the top areas of questions from QDMA, but uh, what I've um, noticed over the years is the questions we receive have changed a little bit. They've evolved as interest among hunters has changed and evolved. Um you know, it used to be food plots was, you know, the, the bulk of the questions we get about habitat. How do I do food plots? What do I, what's the best thing to plant? How much fertilizer do I use? How do you kill this weed? I mean, it was, that was the preponderance of the questions we would get. We still get a lot of food plot questions. That's, you know, never going to go away, but it's, it's evolved over time, and we get more questions now about tree planting and, timber management and, you know, cover and natural forages, sort of going beyond the edge of the food plot into the woods. People want to know, okay, outside the plot, what else can I be doing to increase food and cover for deer? And how do I manage natural plants? Um, And even, you know, in the food plot realm, the questions have shifted over time, and we get more questions now about how do I do food plots that are low impact? How do I use fewer herbicides and fewer chemicals. Um, how can I do this without, you know, genetically modified crops and that kind of thing. So we've gone there as well. So, yeah, you know, habitat, I, I don't know if I could say that it's increasing in terms of the, the relative amount of interest in habitat in general, deer habitat, but I definitely can tell you it has changed and evolved and lately the bulk of it is more in the area of managing natural plants for deer. Very nice, and I think uh, I think you're you're right on that. And I think that the food plots. I mean, it's, it's kind of where Brian and I started too, honestly, way back when. Um, and we still like talking about food plots. Talk about it probably every day on our text messages. But uh, like you said, I mean. There's so many other things you can be doing out there, and as our listeners know and have heard, and uh, like, like you talked about on your last episode with us. So, yeah, I want to get into a couple things we're going to talk about here tonight. But first of all, I want to hear about the uh, the Lindsay Turkey Camp and how that went on your your family property down there. Uh, I didn't have much. Uh, I was I got one gobbler this year. I didn't have a, a big turkey season though. I only got to go twice. Uh, oh man. 
Yeah, the uh, Grace Acres, which is my dad's land, my family's land, is four hours from where I live. And, you know, during the lockdown phase here in Georgia, um, you know, we sort of had to think twice about traveling that far, um, you know, even down to stopping for getting gas and, and that kind of thing. But also, you know, my dad is 76 years old, and and we have – I have not seen him in person since, you know, mid-March. We've, we've avoided each other, and he's avoided uh, my brother and my sister and their families as well. Uh, we talk a lot, but we – you know, the last thing I want is – uh, for my dad or my mom to uh, to get this thing, so we've been very very careful about that. Anyhow, for that reason, I didn't get to go turkey hunting much this year. But my daughter Laurel and I did slip away one weekend in April um, and were able to get away. She she's uh, uh, just graduated high school this spring, starting college in the fall, and you know it's been a rough time for her as well. For any any young person who's graduating high school right now, it's a very weird year to, to be going through those milestones. And she was kind of cooped up and ready to get out of the house too. So we both broke out and snuck off and took off for a weekend to Grace Sakers and, you know, plan to do some fishing and hunting. And so we got up the first morning, went turkey hunting. Laurel's been with me before turkey hunting, but never when I got a turkey. So this time we were very fortunate. We got a gobbler that morning, and, uh, yeah, it was a great hunt. Um, I got to go back another time later in the spring and uh, did not have any luck that time. So two hunts, one gobbler, that's that's a pretty good pretty good batting average for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Is she, uh, is she pretty into it too? She is. She loves to fish. Um, and she deer hunts with me. Um, she wasn't, you know, I asked her, I said, look, do you want to try to shoot a turkey? And she wasn't quite there yet. She said, no, but I'd like to go with you. So she was there with me, and, and it was a, a a good hunt. You know, it was not one of those easy ones that we had to work at it. Um, uh-huh. Birds were gobbling early on the roost, but as often happens, you think you're close to a bird, and you're calling and answering, and then they all fly down, and everybody goes the other way. So we kind of had to follow along and get down in the swamp there at Grace Acres and uh, work our way around. And eventually we had a bird answering and seemed fairly interested, but there was a creek between us and him. We had to wade it. Laurel did not have on knee boots, so she had to get up uh, over her boots in, in the creek. But she was a real trooper about it, and we got on back in there and got set up and Shortly after the that, that getting across the creek and getting set up, I called, and here he came. We could see him coming from probably 100 yards off through the swamp and strutting, gobbling. She got to see the whole show. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a really, really exciting hunt and very special to have her with me. And then, of course, um, you know, to enjoy bringing that home and cooking it, eating it, the whole, the whole works. She is going to study marine science, ocean sciences, in college. So she's taken a lot of anatomy classes and things like that. And one of the things we did that I'd never done before with a turkey was she kind of wanted to do a, a, you know, a necropsy. So we literally, after breasting the turkey out, uh, we took it apart piece by piece and found all the parts and the gallbladder and, you know, everything. Um, And it really was you know, the heart, all of that, and 
she showed me some things I didn't know about, you know, how the, how it was put together. Anyway, wow. it was pretty interesting. Pretty interesting time. Oh, congratulations! Sounds like a great great time up there. Yeah, we did have a good time. Thank you. So I have to ask, what's your number one turkey recipe then? Um, my old standard, and it's really the only thing I've ever done, is just turkey fingers deep fried. Um, I like to, you know, cut them up in in strips, soak them in buttermilk for 24 hours, and uh, and then just roll them in some salt, pepper, and flour, and deep fry them. That's it. that's my favorite. Um, so I've tried it other ways. I've tried, you know, smoking a turkey breast in the past, and it just didn't turn out very good. So you know, when when turkey fingers are are a big hit among everybody, it's hard to go away from that. Sure is. It's the same way we do it here. Kids love it that way, too. Yep, yep, they really do. Yeah, it's hard to beat hot oil, for sure. <laughs> Just about anything. <laughs> so, Lindsay, I've been noticing you've been posting a lot of hashtag Invasive Slam 2020, and uh, you've been really putting the work in on the invasives. Could you walk us through what that is and uh, maybe what you're targeting? Yeah, that's just, um, you know, an idea that hit me this year. I don't even know, I can't even remember now when I thought it up or why. You know, just um, getting outdoors at QDMA headquarters, looking at the ways we can improve the deer habitat there, looking at it on my family's land, other places I hunt. You know, I'm always thinking about things we can remove. It's, It's something I've come to learn is that, you know, a lot of people think improving deer habitat means adding something. It means planting something, planting some seed in the ground or planting a tree or whatever you, you add. But really what I've come to realize is you can make a lot of great deer habitat by subtracting things, by, by getting rid of things, um, by thinning the forest and putting more sunlight on the ground to allow forage and cover to grow. And once you start looking at what could I remove, invasive species are, are, you know, first on the list. And when you start paying attention to that, you start realizing how many are out there. So it just hit me, you know, everybody talks about doing a turkey slam where you're going to travel around the country and get the different subspecies of turkeys. Uh, you, you see all kind of slams and, you know, uh, collections and hunting exploits. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, why not try to see how many different invasive trees and plants I can kill in one year? Um, not the total amount, but just simply the list of unique species. So that was where I came up with Invasive Slam 2020. Um, I killed Chinese privet was the first one I knocked off the list. I mean, I kill a lot of these things every year, but I'd never really totaled up how many different species in a year. So that, that's where that came from. So every time now that I chalk a new one off the list, I post it on social media and tag it with Invasive Slam 2020. <laughs> That's what you've been seeing. Uh, yeah. Is me posting a new species that I've, I've knocked off the list. And that's a great way to look at it, uh, what we can remove, because like you said, we're always trying to put our thumbprint on everything and what we can add and what we can do to make it better. But that's a great way to look at it with just, doing simple things like subtracting some things that are kind of slowing everything else down. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a long, long list of plants out there, and everyone has them, every region and every state. 
um, a long, long list of plants that don't belong there that we've brought in from, you know, sometimes intentionally because we brought them in for the landscape industry or for home gardening. Other times we brought them in accidentally um, in other ways, but they're here. Not all of them, you know, necessarily are things you need to deal with. It's the ones that are invasive, the ones that are truly aggressive and, and tough to deal with that by removing those, you create a space for something better. Those plants are taking up space, taking over space, out-competing native plants and trees that deer can use and that are better value. Better value as cover, better value as forage. So, yeah, subtracting them from the landscape helps you create uh, and increase deer forage and deer cover. Um, and it's, you know, it's a very, once you start recognizing some of the, the worst ones you've got out there, you quickly see small and big ways that you can make a real quick big difference for habitat quality. For sure. And what are the what are a couple of big ones that are you're battling in your area, Georgia, down there? Yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot of them. You know, some of the, the trees that I'm going to kill or have killed, uh, China berry, mimosa are pretty bad. Um, in South Georgia, we got a tree called the tallow tree that is, it's, I think it's also Asian. It's pretty bad, particularly in river drainages. Uh, we don't have them here in North Georgia, so I'm going to travel to Grace Acres to get that one. Um, and then there are, the calorie pear is another one that's very bad. And, and the thing about it, you know, you can still go today and buy those at Home Depot. Uh, they call them Bradford pears, calorie pear. It's all the same thing. And um, it's a terrible invasive. You know, it was supposedly, quote, sterile when they decided to start marketing it here. Don't worry, it's sterile. It, it won't ever get out of hand. Well, incorrect, it did. And, um, you know, they're terribly invasive and have uh, no value to a deer whatsoever. So, you know, killing those and they're bad to shade out the ground and shade out other plants, that's a good one. And those are some of the trees. You know, here in North Georgia, we've got kudzu, which is a vine. And that's a very bad one because it blankets the ground in large areas. It smothers other plants, shrubs, vines, and wipes them out. It will climb mature trees and eventually smother them. Uh, so it, it's a bad one. You know, it's deer will eat it. Um, it's not top of the line forage, but deer will eat it. And so a lot of people think, well, you know, deer will eat this, so it can't be bad. But, you know, the thing I've noticed about kudzu is um, these huge areas where it blankets the ground, once we get the first frost and the leaves are gone, that area is a wasteland for wildlife until spring greenup the following spring because uh -huh. the kudzu has pretty much wiped out everything else. The deer can't browse the vines. The vines pretty much deteriorate into uh, nothing in winter. So there's no winter browse there. Um, that, you know, so six months out of the year, yeah, deer will eat some kudzu leaves. The other six months out of the year, that area is just blank. There's no value in it whatsoever, cover or forage for deer out there. You know, nobody can afford to have that much area on their hunting land doing nothing for deer six months out of the year. So, yeah. Wow. Saying that kudzu, you know, deer will eat it, that's a poor excuse. There's there's a lot better things you can have than that. So kudzu's a bad one. Um, 
in South Georgia now at Grace Acres, we've got something called Japanese climbing fern. It's similar. It's not quite as bad as kudzu, but it's similar in that it uh, blankets things and climbs up things. The bad thing about Japanese climbing fern is it will climb up on pines and hardwood trees. It won't overtake them, but it will climb up on the trunk. Then when you come around in winter or whenever to do your prescribed fire, those ferns catch fire and burn pretty hot right up on the bark of mature trees. And that causes a fire that otherwise would have had no damage whatsoever to those mature trees. It'll cause them to to uh, get too hot where those ferns are burning. So, you know, that's one that's got to go. So, yeah, we could talk all night about, I could go on and on about the species out there that, you know, as a deer hunter, deer habitat manager, you need to get rid of if you got them. Sure. You guys have got them too up there where y'all are in Michigan and every part of the country. You've got different species. Some of these you've got and some you don't, and you've got your own. So, yeah, to do my slam, I may have to come up and visit y'all to kill some of those up there to, to lengthen my list. No, I, I have some uh, autumn olive with your name on it, Lindsay. So. <laughs> I will be glad to come help. I actually, yeah, no, I'd love to have you up here. And, and I've actually just been cutting it down recently. Um, I, have a, I have a question. You know, you say there's there are better things to go in place of, of these invasives, better native species. Um, I would agree. I'm curious, with like autumn olive up here in Michigan, what would be your suggestion? Uh, maybe, maybe letting something native stay there that comes back by itself, or if you were to plant something native, what would be your suggestion that would be better, you know, a better replacement? Anything native that's going to come up there, the seeds are there. Um, anytime you get rid of a non-native invasive like that, the, the plant, uh, the seed bank and the plant community is going to respond. Now, some of the seeds there are going to be more autumn olive, you know, or other things, multiflora rose, buckthorn, whatever it might be, that you also need to get rid of. But there's going to be natives that are going to fill in there, all kinds of grasses and forbs and vines that will pop up. And that's what's better. Um, ultimately, those things are better food than whatever that was there before, uh, better cover. And, uh, yeah, over the long haul, better for not just deer, but everything. Better for turkeys, uh, better for wildlife that we don't hunt. Um, better for you, you know, in terms of how you manage it. Um, because, you know, whenever you get these stands of, of autumn olive that are just solid autumn olive, just like we see here in the south with Chinese privet, where we get these solid blocks of Chinese privet, that's all that's in there. And, um, you know, whatever the benefit is for deer that they use, whether they use it for cover or maybe they browse that or whatever it is, you know, by getting rid of that, you open up that area to a diversity of different plants that offer a broad range of benefits for deer food and forage and cover, um, and all the benefits for other things, too. So um, the seeds are there. Now, certainly, you know, you can plant things if you want to to help that along. There are, you know, seed mixes you can get and native warm season grass seeds and uh, prairie blends and all kinds of things you can get that are suited to your area. But a lot of times what you find is that the, the native seeds that are there that come up, as you gradually, again, you know, if you put sunlight on the ground, whatever's there is going to come up. Some of it is going to be stuff that doesn't belong. Um, and if you continue to weed those out and control those, the natives will dominate. 
Um, you know, we've got a we had a bad patch of Chinese privet at Grace Acres that we got rid of with some help from the NRCS in a cost share program. And just this spring being down home uh, during turkey season, I walked through that area looking at all the different kinds of plants, forage and cover species that are coming up there. It's a whole sweet, a whole, you know, diverse list of different plants coming up there that weren't there before because it was nothing but privet. Um, turkeys are using that area. Quail are using that area. Deer are using that area. Um, you know, pollinators are using that area. Butterflies are using that area now. Uh, there's wildflowers there. There's going to be native warm season grasses like broom sedge and, um, you know, soft mass bearing uh, shrubs and, and brambles and briars. You know, just a whole mix of different things that's just so much better than, than what that used to be. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And very, very well said. You have a knack for explaining that uh, very nicely. And with that privet or with my autumn olive, um, what do you do with it once you cut it down? I know we've had some discussions with some other friends of ours, Jason Hardy on here. They, they build, you know, rabbitat or, or things among that nature. What do you do with yours down there? Well, with this particular privet, the one I'm talking about, the big uh, bad block that we got rid of, the uh, through the cost share program, we had a, a contractor come in with a mulcher oh. on a kid steer. And, uh, man, he turned that place into a park overnight. Um, you know, what had been this nasty thicket of privet suddenly was a beautiful mulched, you know, uh, forest with a mulched uh, floor to it. It was nice. You could have uh, had a Frisbee tournament out there. But uh, it didn't stay that way long. You have to spray when the, the – privet comes back from the stump, but then after that, that's when the native plants began to, to thrive there. So normally, you know, if you're just uh, working your way through a smaller patch with your chainsaw and some herbicide and cutting down that kind of stuff, um, I don't know. I've never done uh, any type of uh, brush piling or, or seen how that would work. So I can't really speak to that, but it makes sense to me that if you did want to take that and pile it and create some small game habitat out of the, those tops, you know, or just leave them, just let them lay where they fall, and they'll rot soon enough. And when you run some prescribed fire through there, you know, those dead tops will be consumed. So, you know, for me, following up this kind of treatment with fire, that's, that's the right thing to do, and it's how you maintain these areas that you improve in the early successional cover and forage you're trying to produce. You know, the clock, the way the clock works on any piece of dirt is you start off with grasses and uh, some forbs, and that gradually becomes uh, shrubs and then tree saplings. And then over time, now you've got trees and shade on the ground and the forbs and the grasses and the vines go away, and you're back to a stage where you've got to come in with a chainsaw and cut the trees out to get sunlight back on the ground. Well, if you use fire in between, uh, you can set it back to uh, the startover um, stage and refresh that growth without having to bring a chainsaw in. You don't wait until you got trees, trees and shade on the ground again. You use fire to set back, and it's so much easier doing that. And I'm kind of going off down the fire rabbit hole now, but <laughs> so yeah. So to me, you know, it's that's a whole other topic we could dive into, but but as far as the tops of what you're killing, just let it lay. 
Um, you know, some of the, the trees are big enough that you don't even have to cut them down. You can girdle them with a chainsaw and spray herbicide in the cut. But the smaller things like the autumn olive shrubs, like privet shrubs, um, like bush honeysuckle, uh, those sorts of things, you can just cut them off at the stump, treat the stump with herbicide, and just let the top lay there. So what kind of herbicide would you recommend for stuff like the calorie pear or autumn olive or anything like that? There's a lot of uh, different herbicides that are effective on some of those. Uh, sometimes even just a simple 50-50 solution of glyphosate will kill, you know, a lot of these things you're dealing with. That'll work on uh, privet. Um, and if you read your glyphosate label, it'll tell you about stump treatment and, and that 50-50, you know, mix with water. Um, but there are a lot of species out there that are tougher. Autumn olive, I think, is tougher. There are several others, uh, China berry and a few others that are, you know, fairly tough and, and aren't going to be killed effectively with that. Triclopyr is a real good one. That's Garlon 3A is the brand name. Triclopyr is the active ingredient. Now that's a pretty good one. You can also mix that at a 50-50 solution with water. Um, and then that is uh, very effective on a wide range of trees. Now, what we've learned about Garlon through some of Dr. Craig Harper's research at the University of Tennessee is it is weaker on some species like hickory and sourwood and, and a couple of others. So he came up with a cocktail. I called it the Craig Harper cocktail. <laughs> that it's a blend. And the nice thing about this blend is whatever you cut, whatever you girdle, whatever you're trying to kill, it will kill it. Now this is this is a blend that's for stump treatment and spraying in girdles, the, the cuts you, you do around the trunk of a tree. This is okay. not a foliar spray. You know, it's not a, you know, you don't load this up in your backpack sprayer and hose down green plants and leaves. That's, uh, you know, with, a, with glyphosate, you can, you can do that. And I'm talking about, you know, stump treatment and girdle of large shrubs and trees. Um, but that cocktail that I'm using, and when you see these pictures I've had on social media with the invasive slam, what that is is a mix of Garlon and Arsenal AC. Arsenal is Imazapir. Now, it's a little more expensive, but in this blend that Craig came up with, it's, it's only 10% of your, your blend. So, uh, you know, it goes fairly far. But the blend is uh, you, you start and you have to mix it in this order. This is what Craig learned. You know, when he was doing his research, he was trying out learning that some of these herbicides had weaknesses, and he didn't want to have to carry several different squirt bottles through the woods with him while he was daylighting woods and getting rid of invasive trees. So he started experimenting with blends. What he learned was you could take uh, a squirt bottle and mix 50% triclopyr or garlon, then put 40% water on top of that, then finish off the final 10% with your imazapyr or Arsenal AC on top. So that's your, your squirt bottle. You have to mix it in that order or else he found that it would gel. If you just dump the Arsenal in with the garlon without the water in between, they'll gel. So, uh, and then finally, what you add to that is some blue dye to your squirt bottle. That way, when you're working through the woods, killing invasive trees or other trees, 
uh, you can see what you've treated, what stumps you've sprayed, and what girdles you've sprayed. So in these pictures on social media uh, that you see me sharing, you see the square bottle with the blue material in it. That's why it's blue, and you see the you can see it where I've sprayed it on the stomach. That's what I'm okay. using the, the uh, Craig Harper cocktail. Now, are all those ingredients as readily available as uh, glyphosate is? No, they are not. Glyphosate is, you know, very widely available, as you know. You can just about get it at the corner of the gas station. Um, but you'll need to order online usually, unless you've got a fairly well-stocked, you know, pesticide herbicide outlet near you. Um, most of the time, you got to order those online. But you can find it and then, uh, from various uh, forestry supply companies, uh, food plot and pesticide supply companies. They'll have Arsenal and Garlon. Um, now, you know, don't get sticker shot when you look at Arsenal. It's about $450 for a two-and-a-half-gallon jug. But when wow. you look at the math on that squirt bottle, only 10% of that squirt bottle is Arsenal. So you can make 200 squirt bottles of that blend with that $450 jug of Arsenal. Now, the thing to remember, go back to what I said about Garlon. You know, it's much less expensive. It's about 120, 150 bucks for a two and a half gallon jug. Just a 50-50 blend of that garlon and water will kill a lot of things. It's mostly just weak, like I said, on hickories and sourwood and a couple other things. So when you're working through a stand of woods and you're thinning hickories down to just a few select trees so that you can put sunlight on the ground, if you've got a lot of hickory in your woods and that's going to be a, a species you're going to need to thin out a lot, that's when you're going to want that uh, arsenal and want to, to mix that Craig Harper cocktail. Okay, that makes sense. Now for the dye, is that just uh dye you can pick up anywhere? Yeah, it's just uh, blue colorant. I think you can Google blue colorant. And and most, uh, wherever you uh, buy your herbicide, you should be able to get that dye. And don't spill that dye in the back of your vehicle. <laughs> That sounds like you're speaking from experience. Yes, sir. I, I picked that up for um, when I first started spraying my food plots. I would use that. I've since abandoned that technique. But, uh, yeah, like I picked it up at a rural king up here. I think it was exactly for – they called it, like, spraying dye or something along those lines. It was very blue and made a mess. But I can see how that could be helpful in your cocktail bottle, knowing what you've treated versus what you haven't. Yeah, when we're doing uh, forest stand improvement, um, I like to do it with two people. One person running the chainsaw, one person running the squirt bottle. And you're working your way through the woods. You're looking for trees you can remove, whether they are invasive trees, whether they are, you know, we've got in the south we have the sweet gum tree, which is a native tree, but it's just super abundant and, and super aggressive. So there's a lot of them out there. And, uh, you know, I'll kill a sweet gum wherever I see one. They have very little wildlife value and no value to a deer. So we're going through the woods. We're looking for, you know, sweet gums. We're looking for invasive trees. And we're looking for it, really any tree species that's overabundant. I mean, even a white oak, y'all. You know, there's no tree that's sacred. If, you know, white oaks are a great deer tree. But if you got too many of them, uh, what we've learned is you can pick a good one in an area get rid of the others, and that one tree will now perform better than the crowd in producing acorns by giving that one tree more room. Meanwhile, you've put daylight on the ground, and uh, you're encouraging foraging cover. So, you know, 
I've had some people, you know, notice me talking about killing beech trees or oak trees and, and be outraged. You know, what? A squirrel will eat a beech nut. Deer eat acorns. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that every one of those trees is, is sacred. If you leave them all there, none of them are going to be very productive. So what I'm talking about here is a, is a selection process where you're, you know, selecting down to some individuals you're going to leave so that they can be more productive. Meanwhile, in between all the trees, you've created sunlight, and that's going to drive your forage and cover. So as we're working through the woods, we got one person on the chainsaw, one person on the squirt bottle, and that die becomes important then because you're, you're moving fairly fast. And, um, you know, to, if, if you look back and you see a tree you girdled and you, you didn't spray it, you know, you missed it. You go back and hit it real quick. So that's where that die becomes very useful. Yeah, I bet you could cover some ground with a two-person uh, team like that. I mean, I'm only working on some small acreage, but, I mean, how, how much ground can you cover in a day doing that? You know, it's, uh, you, can, you can move pretty fast. I mean, a two-person team like that in a day could easily do uh, a patch of five acres. Wow. Um, you know, it's going to depend on the density of trees. True. And how large they are. Uh, you're not cutting them down because, you know, with larger trees, when you're cutting those down, A, it's not as safe. You've got to do a felling cut, and you got to worry about where you're dropping it and make sure it doesn't fall on you, making sure it doesn't get hung up on all the trees. Then you've got a dead tree down on the ground in your work area, and that slows you down. So that's the nice thing about girdling them and spraying them is you don't have to – it takes 30 seconds and the tree's dead. There's no dropping. There's no obstacle. So you can move pretty fast. Now, I've, I've been through some stands that are younger where there are very, very dense sweet gum trees, and there's a lot of them, and they're fairly small, you know, and it takes you more time to work through that area most, you know, a lot of times those trees will be too small to girdle. You're literally just sort of zipping them off at about waist high and dropping them and then spraying the top of that stump. Um, and that can take some time working your way through an area that's that dense. So it varies a little bit just depending on, you know, the woods you're working in. Okay. No, that's great information. Thanks for covering that. I think uh, I'm going to have to make me a Craig Harper cocktail. That sounds pretty interesting. It kind of looks like one of those blue hurricane drinks you get down in Florida or something, too. Same color, you know. That's what I was yeah. thinking when I saw the post. Yeah, don't drink it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you do have to, you know, just a word about safety. Always read your label on these things. And, and these are, you know, you be wearing gloves. You want to be wearing eye protection. Um, you want to watch the wind. You don't want to spray a tree upwind so that the mist drifts back in your face and you breathe it. So, you know, these are things you have to be careful about. You're, you're using very small amounts of herbicide to do this, to kill a tree. It doesn't take much. It's a surgical strike. Um, but the thing to remember about imazapir or arsenal is it is soil active. So you don't want to tip it over and spill it on, in the woods, um, you know, because any tree that takes that up through the root system is dead. So, um, yeah, you have to be careful with it. Personal safety, but it's also, you know, safety in the woods working around the trees you don't want to kill. Great tips. And if you ever need any extra spray bottles, let me know. It's, it's kind of it's kind of what I do. So Really? Okay. Oh, we'll have to talk about that afterwards. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, I'm glad we got into the, the herbicides a lot there. Um, There's always so much to learn when it comes to those and great information. Now, we, we kind of touched on it earlier, and you mentioned it. Burning. So, 
we've talked about prescribed fire on here multiple times, but you mentioned something earlier and must have been on your social media I saw. You called it growing season burning. Um, kind of piqued my interest because I don't think I've ever heard it referred to as that. Is that something new and 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 just different from this other practice that we normally talk about on here? Or can you explain? It's not new, but it is sort of new in the culture of forest management uh, today. Okay. Because what, you know, what we're looking at right now, traditionally, you know, prescribed fire is making a comeback. It's becoming more popular. It's becoming more widely used. Uh, Forestry agencies around the country are encouraging it and getting, you know, kind of getting away from the old days of Smokey the Bear and don't ever burn the woods. Um, and certainly wildfire is a bad thing. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, you know, a controlled fire that burns slow and relatively cool to achieve a habitat management objective. So it's getting, it's coming back and more and more people are doing it. But traditionally, it is generally a dormant season thing. It's something you do in the winter, especially here in the South. That's, that's what I grew up doing, helping my dad do prescribed fire in the winter. And the reason for that is, is that in winter, that's when you typically get your best burn conditions. You get your best predictable weather patterns, your safest weather patterns. You get your, you know, your dry days when your humidity is low and the the fuel will burn. And it's just relatively easy to get a burn permit, relatively easy to have a good fire. So that's when we burn. Um, But historically, what the research is showing us now is that when you think about it, Natural fire usually happens during summer because that's when lightning storms are. That's when, you know, as we get into late summer, that's when sometimes it gets very hot and dry during a drought, and then you have a lightning storm coming along, now you've got wildfire. Traditionally, natural wildfire, that's when it usually happens, not during winter. So the plants are, plant communities are really more adapted to a growing season fire, a warm season or summer fire, than they are to a winter fire. Now, a dormant season fire, a winter fire, still has benefits for wildlife. It still acts as what I was talking about earlier, where it is the it is the the rewind button on your habitat. If you have, you know, put sunlight in an area by, say, thinning the forest, and you go along a year or two years, you've got some high-quality forage and cover there coming along. Then three years, you're getting more into your tree saplings. Four to five years now you're starting to get some shade on the ground, um, you don't want to get back to that stage of chainsaw work like I was talking about. Fire gets the rewind on that and, and starts it back. But And that still happens with a winter or dormant season fire. But what we're learning now from the research is that you get a different plant community response when you burn during the growth, growing season. Primarily, and some work by Dr. Craig Harper and Dr. Marcus Lashley, who's now at the University of Florida. He was at Mississippi State. Craig's at Tennessee. Um, What their work is showing is that uh, winter fire generally pushes a plant community towards grasses, where growing season fire generally pushes a plant community more toward forbs and plants that are valuable forage for deer. You still encourage those with winter fire. It's just you get more of that if you can burn a little bit during the growing season. You also get a different effect on some of the hardwood species. I was talking about sweet gums earlier, which is one that we like to control. We don't want those. Well, if you burn a stand of woods in the winter and there are sweet gum saplings in there, they're dormant. 
They have lost their leaves. They're sitting there dormant. When that fire comes through, it kills the top of that tree, but it does not kill the root system. The tree is really sort of, you know, retracted into its root system for the winter, and what's going to happen now is it's simply going to grow back from the root system. But if you burn that same area in the growing season, while that sweet gum sapling is green and growing, it's dead. It's killed. That fire that burns through the base of that sapling and scorches the cambium layer kills that sapling dead, and it's not going to come back. So, again, some of the benefits of a growing season fire are that it tends to be better and more effective at killing those hardwood saplings and seedlings that you're trying to stop from establishing and better at encouraging uh, the highly nutritious, highly digestible forbs that deer love to eat. So, yeah, when you saw me kind of celebrating on social media that we'd gotten a burn condition, a good burn day in May, and my dad was able to do some fire, I was just excited by that because, you know, having read this research, I knew that I wanted to begin to do some growing season fire. Not all of it. Not You know, I'm not talking about converting our entire fire uh, effort into growing season fire, but simply to add some diversity to that effort and take some small patches and do some growing season fire and see what the effect is. Um, and hopefully it will be exactly what I just explained, that, that we will get uh, some highly valuable deer forage. The pictures I shared when, you know, when y'all saw that, um, and, and I had walked through the area the day after it was burned, there was a lot of American beautyberry in there, which is a small shrub. There was a lot of uh, smooth sumac and winged sumac. Both of those are pretty good deer species. They're good cover, and deer will browse them to some extent. They're not great forage. They're okay forage. But both of those species had really through repeated dormant season fire, they had become too common. The place was choked with those species, and that's pretty much all there was. Um, so repeated dormant season fire was not going to change that. If we kept burning in that area, that's what we were going to continue to have. Well, with that growing season fire, it killed that stuff dead wherever it hit it. And that's what I was excited to see is um, what's going to come in there now as a result of that. It's probably going to be something even more valuable for deer than what we had before. Now, again, we didn't burn this entire property when we did this fire. We burned about five acres out of, you know, about a 1,200-acre property where this happened. So it's just a small patch. It's just a small experiment. We didn't get rid of all of the American beautyberry or sumac on this place, just in this one patch. And uh, that's what we're going for. It's sort of a patchwork diversity across the property where you've got different return intervals of fire. In other words, you know, some patches where you're coming around every two to three years with fire and others where you're going a little bit longer. Um, and every year there are patches you're not burning. Every year there are some you are burning. Some you're burning dormant season. Some you're burning growing. And, and that's the kind of diversity you want to go for. When you do that, deer and other wildlife have every kind of stage of forest succession out there to choose from and, and all of the benefits that come with each stage of plant recovery. Very interesting. And when you're doing this, do you still have normal fire breaks that you created yourself, or are these patches set up to be able to burn like that normally? Yeah, this particular patch already had fire breaks around it because we do a lot of fire on these properties. Of course, we plow them again. You know, you usually go back and plow them fresh 
uh, when we get ready to burn because you do want a bare dirt fire break uh, around your areas. You know, unless you've got something like a, a clean dirt woods road or an open field or a creek or a pond, some other barrier besides a plowed fire break. But this, these particular areas had plowed fire breaks around them. We did just those again to make sure, again, that it was uh, exposed dirt. And um, so, yeah, yeah, we did have fire breaks. You know, we burn them just like, just like we do in the winter. You know, and, and when we talk about burning, one thing I should mention here, yeah, but, yeah, you never burn without a fire break, that's for sure, around your entire patch that you're going to burn. Um, and for anybody who's not who's listening right now and is not familiar with prescribed fire, we are not talking about a roaring fire that's over your head high and that's consuming everything as it goes through the woods. We're actually talking about a pretty boring fire. Um, we're talking about flame heights that are a few inches high, creeping through the forest into the wind. You want to burn into the wind. You want this thing to go slow. You've selected a day where the winds are not going to be high, where the fuel conditions are not too dry but not too wet. Uh, and so that that fire creeps along the ground, slowly consuming the leaf litter and, and consuming plant matter and debris on the forest floor, but not getting hot enough that it's damaging mature trees, pine trees, hardwoods. Uh, that fire is creeping past those, consuming the leaf litter, uh, damaging some of the smaller shrubs and forbs and things that are there, like you want it to do, setting those back, but not harming trees. Um, you know, a lot of people picture prescribed fire, and they're thinking, you know, they're seeing the fire department, and they're seeing raging flames and, you know, the, the, the 10 o'clock news out there with the cameras. No. When you do prescribed fire right, it's actually pretty boring. You know, you kind of sit there, and you're, you're sitting there tapping your foot and looking at your watch and going, man, I, I wish this could hurry up and get done. But that's, that's how you want it. You, you want a slow you know, cool fire, and I say cool, you know, sort of with air quotes around it. Um, uh, it's still hot. It's still fire, but it is cool in the sense that it's not hot enough to cause damage to anything you don't want to damage. So is there a certain time of year where you should be doing these? Um, you mentioned May in your area of the world. Uh, is it the same up here? I mean, I imagine that changes somewhat, but I, I guess when and what are the the perfect conditions for it that you can look out for? Yeah, when is going to be, you know, whenever you can, when you can get the, the burning conditions. And it, and it really just depends. You know, you might want to experiment with it a little bit. Um, you don't have to burn big areas. You know, it doesn't have to be multiple acres. You know, it can be an acre. It can be less than that. Um, to do a test run and see, see how it goes. Uh, but whenever you burn you're going to get a little bit different effect based on the timing. You know, you know, if you if you go out and take a set of disc harrows and plow a disc down the middle of a fallow field, a few weeks later there's going to be some response from the seeds there in the, in the plant community. But if you disc a month later, you're going to get a different response because at different times, different seeds in the seed bank are going to respond to those conditions at a different time. Same thing with fire. Uh, when you burn in May versus, say, July versus, say, August or September, you're going to get a little bit different response from certain plants. So really it's just sort of, you know, experimental. See what you can do. Uh, Marcus Lashley did a study with his students uh, just a couple of years ago. You might have seen this. I wrote about it, and they called it bow range burning. 
And what yes. they were doing was uh, going out around bow stands, deer stands, and taking a leaf blower and blowing a fire break in a circle around their bow stands at a radius of 30 yards, bow range, and then burning that circle around that bow stand. Uh, okay, so a radius of 30 yards, that works out to be about a quarter acre that they're burning in a little circle. And what they were doing was burning in early September so that when bow season opened in late October, the attraction of that little spot that had been burned and the plants that were recovering there would be very high for deer. And they documented 13 times more shot opportunities on deer around the burn stands than around deer stands where they had not burned that circle. Wow. So, you know, you can time it that way. And in that study, what they found was that, and this was in Mississippi, so it may vary somewhat in different parts of the country and where you are, but what they found was that the peak of nutritional quality of the plants that responded to the fire occurred about seven weeks after they burned. So that's why they, uh, you know, set that fire in early September to time things for late October bow season. And now, again, in, you know, where you guys are in Michigan, I mean, tell me, by late October, y'all got frost on the ground pretty much, don't you? Yeah, yep. Right. So, you you know, you're not going to want to be burning in September. You'd want to back that up a little bit uh, because, you know, managing native forages is you're reaching the end of your growing season at that point. So you you adjust your timing a little bit. But going back to what, you know, they learned about summer fire, when you think about it, if if a wildfire or other fire happens in in spring or summer and that forage that responds hits, you know, peak nutrition and digestibility and attraction seven weeks later. What great timing for fawn, uh, for does that are nursing fawns and bucks that are growing antlers. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, that's where they're beginning to encourage more growing season fire is because it really can maximize nutrition for deer at a time that they need it most. So, again, we're not talking about going out there and changing your entire plan and burning everything you can burn at one time during the growing season. But but adding in a few acres to your test run and seeing how it goes, yeah, that's doable. And that's that's what I'm looking forward to now is just, again, adding a few patches uh, to your mix, your grid of burn units, and designated a couple of those to try for some growing season fire and seeing what the effect is. No, that sounds awesome. Um, and I do remember hearing that study by Marcus Lashley. I didn't realize the 13 times shot opportunity. Um, must have missed that or didn't finish it or something. That's that's awesome. I mean, you could even do that in a, in a shape, you know, upwind to you instead of downwind to you. Or you, know, you could get real creative with that. That's pretty neat. Yeah. I mean, what they saw, you know, you've seen uh, Marcus's work on what he calls mineral stumps. Correct. Where... You know, they, they measured the forage coming out of a, of a tree stump, the, the sprouts, and determined that that's far more digestible and has more protein than the mature leaves on that tree that you cut down would have had. It's the same effect with fire. What it's doing is killing small shrubs and small plants, and they're coming back from the root or they're coming back from seed. And in that initial flush for those first few weeks, they are highly nutritious and digestible, and that's where you get that attraction. That's where they were getting, you know, all of this, this, this rapidly increased shot opportunities around those sands where they had burned.
Lindsay, one of the main reasons why we wanted to have you on, uh, we discussed a little bit uh, with you over email about uh, trying to help out with the QDMA. And um, one of the things that we've been concerned with, and I know you guys have been uh, dealing with it and a lot of other conservation organizations have been too, is, uh, you know, this time of year, uh, especially in the springtime, which, which we're getting towards the end of here, uh, you have a lot of auctions and a lot of uh, banquets and things that, that really keep the numbers flowing and, and really support the, the organization and your mission. And uh, you guys have been hurting a little bit this year. And Jared and I just wanted to reach out and see what we could do to help and, and give you an opportunity to discuss maybe what some of our listeners could do to help. Yeah, and I really appreciate that, Brian. You guys have, you know, reached out early on and expressed your concern and wanting to help. And I just don't know what we do without folks like y'all, members like y'all who are there for QDMA. It's really been great to see that response from people like you this spring. Uh, but, yeah, it's, you know, losing the ability for our branches to hold banquets, uh, that's been a hit. Um, it's been a big financial hit. And you've seen from our activity that we've been trying to come up with creative new ways to raise alternative funds through raffles and auctions and things like that. But, yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways that, that y'all can help us that we've talked about and your listeners can help us, you know, whether that is just making a straight donation, renewing your membership, buying some merchandise from us, or even just, you know, there's free ways you can go on Amazon.com and, and sign up for Amazon Smile and designate it QDMA as your as your nonprofit charity. And that way, every time you buy something on Amazon, you know a piece of that um, Amazon will donate some of the the profit back to us. Uh, and that doesn't cost you a thing. Sign up for our free newsletters uh, at QDMA.com. Things like that that can help us. And then you know there's some some bigger things like we talked about the Deer Steward Program, um, which level one. It's a training course, and Level 1 of Deer Steward is online, entirely online. It's been videoed in the past and because it used to be an in-person course, but now it's all online. And you can watch those presentations and become a Deer Steward online. By doing that, you know, you're helping QDMA through your, your fee that you pay to, to do that, and, but you're learning, you know, incredible amounts of information. So, you know, going to QDMA.com and learning about those things, Deer Steward, some of the other opportunities to help us, would be, you know, appreciated and would be great ways for your listeners to help and for y'all to help. I know we've talked about you guys taking the Deer Steward course and, and sharing that with your listeners. Yeah, definitely. We're going to get that started. Jared and I are both going to sign up for the Deer Steward one, and uh, we're going to update our listeners as we go through it over social media, give you some updates on the podcast, and uh, we challenge all you out there listening to join us. Go sign up, and uh, we can compare notes and tell stories and uh, see what our progress is on social media. I think that's a great idea. It'd be really fun. We we've seen a surge this spring of taking folks taking the deer steward course online. You know, I assume it's because a lot of people were quarantined or stuck at home earlier this year, uh, couldn't work, couldn't leave the house, and you know, what what better? Uh, once you finish watch, watching Netflix, you know, it's a great way to to uh, fill your time and, and learn how to become a deer ninja. I think y'all will have a great time with it. You know, you guys are very experienced and, and know a lot, but I guarantee you there will be things here that you will learn from these experts 
and uh, yeah, and chatting with your your followers and your fans and your listeners about their experiences going through it, that that could be really fun. Yeah, definitely looking forward to doing that for sure. Uh, give us a little walkthrough breakdown of, of what that what we have to look forward to with the Deer Steward One course. Yeah, Deer Steward One covers sort of the the basics of quality deer management, habitat management. It goes into whitetail biology very carefully, uh, aging deer by jawbones, um, you know, the works, the how to do data collection. It is, you know, how quality deer management works, why it works the way it does, the biology of a deer population, and, you know, how you make those management decisions about how many does you should probably harvest, uh, whether you should harvest does or not. Um, you know, improving buck age structure, aging bucks on the hoof. Uh, and then food plots and habitat management, it's, it's the, you know, the whole nine yards of the four cornerstones of quality deer management. Now, level two, you know, is the, that's still the in-person class. I'd love to talk to you all, you know, down the road once you finish level one about getting you guys at a level two class, but you go and spend a weekend with our instructors and it's more hands-on. It's it's uh, getting out in the weeds and spraying the herbicides and planting the plots and, and, and even running some prescribed fire. We've had some deer steward classes that worked out with the location and the timing where they were able to do some burning. So it's more getting your hands dirty. But level one is the, yeah, you when you get done with level one, you will fully understand whitetail biology and the nature of quality deer management from start to finish. Yeah, that sounds great. And what's also nice about that, Lindsay, is that can directly relate, you know, understanding the biology, et cetera, can directly relate to your hunting success too, right? I mean, if you understand how white-tailed deer works and, and all these these um, courses, or I'm sorry, all these sessions in your, you know, 16-hour, 20-topic Deer Steward 1 thing here, um, I mean, that's going to make you a better overall Dear steward, like, like you named the class after. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when it comes to the, the deer, everything from, you know, vision and scent capability, hearing, what is their hearing capability? What, you know, what is a buck's home range size? What are their movements like over the course of a year? For, you know, bachelor groups versus spreading out during the rut. What's the average home range size? What do we know about the excursions that they take out of their home range? And then where do they go when that happens? How does this all work? Rut behaviors and scrape behaviors, you know, all of this, all of those things help you become a more effective hunter. If you understand how the buck operates during the fall, uh, how it interacts with does, what it's looking for and why it's going where it's going, when it's going, you know, when it's traveling, how much it's traveling, but also how to defeat its defense capabilities through the biology of the animal, you know, that's what deer steward is. It is all of the latest science on these things. Uh, so when I say, you know, you become a deer ninja, that's uh, <laughs> that's what this is. I mean, you, you learn the animal inside out from the latest science that we know that can help you uh, be a better deer hunter. Now, that sounds awesome. And we're going to really enjoy taking this class and sharing it with our listeners. Um, we'll put a, a link in the show notes here on the, you know, the registration um, web address here. And just for for anybody who's not sure on this, I mean, some of the instructors on there, you know, Kip Adams, many have heard of, of Kip. He's a wildlife biologist and the, the director of conservation there. Um, Joe Hamilton, the QDMA's founder. Uh, Dr. Craig Harper, 
like we haven't talked about him enough on this podcast. Love that guy and, and what he does. Um, Dr. Carl Miller and, and even Matt Ross. Uh, I've met a handful of these guys, and, I mean, this is this is going to be a fun course. I'm really excited. Yeah, these are the, you know, they really are some of the most knowledgeable guys out there about the science, um, but in terms of practicing, you know, what they'll be talking about. You know, Matt is a certified forester and a wildlife biologist. Uh, you know, Kiff is a wildlife biologist and certified prescribed fire uh, expert. So, uh, you know, these other folks, Carl and Craig, are university professors. Carl is one of the, the it is, he is the single most published uh, deer researcher in the nation. Nobody else has done more scientific studies on whitetails than Carl Miller. And, you know, Craig leads the nation's uh, leading deer habitat research program there at the University of Tennessee. Nobody else has done more than Craig has on things like fire and forest management and food plots. Uh, so, yeah, these are – and then there's Joe Hamilton, who's been doing this uh, for a long, long time, founded the QDMA, wildlife biologist and you know, deer hunter extraordinaire. So these are, these are top-notch folks when it comes to understanding whitetails. And also to uh, even put a little bit of icing on the cake, you're offering a discount during, what, 2020? Is it the full 2020, or, or how does that work? Yeah, we started – we actually did that back in March when uh, COVID-19 appeared, uh, basically simply to, you know, take a little of the pressure off on folks who were stuck at home and wanted to do this, uh, make it a little bit more affordable. So, honestly, I, I don't know if that goes through the end of 2020, but um, – for right now, it's in place. So, okay, better uh, act fast. I, I don't know of the. I don't think we're getting ready to cut that off anytime soon, to my knowledge. So, okay, great. Well, appreciate you explaining that Deer Steward One course for us and our listeners on here. And and like we like we said, guys, we're going to come on here and talk. Um, Brian and I, as we take this course, tell you tell you all about it. So, look forward to to getting into that. Yeah, and for our listeners that, that don't know about the QDMA and haven't been members, I mean, just the magazine that you get alone is worth the a membership fee. It's not very expensive at all. And uh, just the Deer Steward course is just one of many programs. I mean, we don't have enough time to talk about this podcast. would be hours long if Lindsay told us all the things, all the programs they've got going on. But uh, definitely check them out. And, uh, Lindsay, if you wouldn't mind – Give us a quick recap of the whitetail report for this year, just for folks that haven't seen it and, and what hunters should expect and what the deer uh, habitat and maybe some of the diseases are looking like this year. Yeah, you know, it's um, folks come in and look under the About menu for the whitetail report because um, we do this each year and, and look at details from around the nation. Um on what's going on out there in the whitetail world, things are pretty good. I mean, we've got it pretty good right now as whitetail hunters in this nation. Uh, just as uh, in 2018, the most recent year we, we looked at the data, we set a new record uh, in yearling buck harvest. 30% of the buck harvest nationally was yearlings. That's the lowest it's ever been. Um, I really doubt it'll ever go lower than that. I don't think it needs to go lower than that. You know, we're always going to want the ability for new hunters uh, to be able to take a yearling if they choose. But when you consider where we've been in the past, um, you know, where just 20 to 30 years ago we were up around 70% of the 
of all bucks in the nation were yearlings in the buck harvest, and now we're down to 30. And, and the flip side of that is today we're killing 33 or 35% uh, bucks in the harvest that are three and a half or older. So that's just, you know, wow. that's fantastic. Amazing. Uh, it's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's really a good time out there uh, for whitetails and for deer hunters. Um, certainly there are some areas where, you know, uh, deer numbers are a little low and we need to grow populations. There's plenty of areas where deer populations are still too high and we need to have some doe harvest. Uh, that's just going to vary on a, on a site-by-site basis. Um, but for the most part, things are pretty good. Now, you know, we've got chronic wasting disease, um, and it is becoming a problem in a number of areas. Uh, we're doing our best to manage that. Uh, state agencies are doing their best to manage that where they can. We don't know the solution to that yet. Uh, we need one. We don't know the, you know, you know where, what the end game is on this and how we're going to solve that problem. But we have learned ways to maintain the prevalence of CWD at low levels where hunters and their state agencies work together. So, you know, there's some success stories out there on that as far as some states that are doing a good job of keeping prevalence low and, and maintaining deer populations that can sustain hunter harvest. We're learning some of those things. But we still got a long way to go to solving that problem. Uh, that's, that's something that's big on, on QDMA's radar is, is working on solving that CWD problem. Uh, I think we'll get there eventually. But, uh, you know, this season, it's going to be interesting to me to see the effect now of the coronavirus. Um, you know, will it uh, lead some folks to maybe take a few more deer than they normally would have just to make sure that freezer is stocked up? Are we still going to be in a situation this fall where normal food supply chains at the grocery store are interrupted and it's not as easy to get beef? Uh, as it usually is, in which case, you know, people may want to have a deer or two more in the freezer, more than they normally would have. You know, that that could mean, uh, you know, folks uh, taking a couple more deer than they normally would this fall. That's going to be interesting to see. I think the deer populations out there can sustain that. I don't think that's a problem. Uh, in most of the country, there's, again, a lot of areas where, where we need to take more deer anyway. So a few more deer in the freezer would be a good thing, and, you know, Whitetails are a very, very resilient resource out there. And, you know, even if a whole lot of deer hunters this fall take a few more deer than they normally do, uh, it, it will not be a long-term issue. It'll be a good thing. Um, a few more full freezers, some more venison that all of us can share with our neighbors, you know, that'll be a good thing. I tell you what, I'm definitely going to fill my freezer up uh I only ended up with, I shot, I think, two deer last year, and one of them was six. So we're already out, and it's it's uh, it's going to be a whack-and-stack type of year, Lindsay, I'm telling you. <laughs> it definitely is for me. I only got one deer this past season, and it was not for lack of trying. I had uh, a tough season of, of several hunts that I went on trying to put some does in the freezer that weather and various other things just conspired against me. I did get the one, uh, but uh, this year, um, yeah, I'm definitely going to be back at it, and, and I don't want one. I want, you know, two or three if I can get it this time. So I'm like you. I'm going to be, if I can, <laughs> why can't it second? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's that's great. I think um really look forward to what this fall is going to bring for us, and I want you to, to tell everybody, uh, you know, where they can find you and 
and where they can find the, the Deer Steward One course. But before that, I don't think we were doing this question uh, when we had John last. We've been asking people what their favorite type of tree is. And this could be, well, we already know what types of trees you like to kill. So we got that covered. Um, <laughs> whether it's your favorite tree to hunt out of, uh, just to, to look at, to, uh, just your favorite type of tree. We get some pretty interesting answers, and I'd love to hear what yours is. Hmm. I love trees. I've been planting trees my whole life. You know, my dad got me started at a very young age planting wildlife trees with him, and I've been doing it ever since. Uh, he still loves planting trees. We, it's just a passion of our families. Um, and so I love a lot of trees. But i got to say, you know, my favorite wildlife tree is a swamp chestnut oak. Uh, that is a, it's in the white oak family. It is a native tree here in the southeast. It's, it's generally a, a coastal plain species, you know, along the Gulf and Atlantic coast and generally a drainage species. It, it, you generally find it in river drainages, creek bottoms, places like that. But it is in the white oak family. It makes a ginormous acorn. You, I mean, if you're under this tree in the fall, you better have a hard hat on. Um, and watching a deer crack into one of these things is just, you know, it, it's amazing that they can work that big acorn into the back of their jaw and crack it, but they can do it. And it's highly attractive to deer, just like any tree in the white oak uh, family. It's very similar to what's called a chestnut oak. We have those in the high elevations in Georgia and in the Appalachians. I don't know if you are, um, but it's, it's similar to that, except that uh, all the reports I've got of chestnut oaks are that chestnut oak acorns are not very attractive to deer. So the swamp chestnut oak, it's a beautiful tree. It's got the light-colored bark like a white oak uh, and a big acorn, a big, beautiful leaf. Uh, it's just a pretty tree and, and a great wildlife tree, a great tree to hunt under. You know, I love sitting around a swamp chestnut oak in the fall and hearing those acorns hit the ground and hearing a deer crack into one and then hearing an arrow fly through the air. Crack into him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's got to be my, my favorite. I, I love a persimmon tree. I love a crabapple tree. My first deer I killed underneath the crabapple tree. So there are, you know, others I'm very, very partial to, but i uh, got to put swamp chestnut oak at the top. Very nice. Great answer. I don't think we've had that one yet. Have we, Brian? I don't think so. No, I don't think. Awesome. Awesome. That's a good question. Thank you for asking that. I'm glad y'all are asking people that one. That's that's a good one. Yeah, we get some pretty cool answers about it, whether it's, uh, you know, some family history, Grandpa Stan was there, or whether it's um, there's some very cool types of uh, apple trees that Michigan's QDMA member, uh, Eric Schnell, do you know Eric from up I here sure in Michigan? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not, not the member, the, the state director. but uh, Yeah, Eric's a very active volunteer for us. Yes, sir. And ask him about apple trees sometime. You get a great answer. Um, I'll do that. But yeah, it's it's just it's a fun question. So, well, Lindsay, thank you so much. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, real quick, let us know where we can find you and 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 follow your cool cocktail uh, Facebook posts and all that. That's fun. Well, that'd be a good way to find me on uh, Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Just search for hashtag. Invasive Slam 2020, and you'll find my post because I think I'm the only one who's doing it so far. Um, but uh, but yeah, you can search for Lindsey Thomas Jr. on any of those platforms. 
Also, look for QDMA. You know, you can learn a lot about us at QDMA.com. QDMA is on all the social channels as well, at the QDMA. Uh, So, yeah, go to QDMA.com if you don't know much about us. A great way to to find out more would be to simply go and sign up for our free weekly e-newsletter. Go to QDMA.com slash newsletter and sign up free, and it'll be in your inbox every Thursday morning. You'll learn a lot about us. You'll learn what we're up to. You'll get some great content on deer hunting and deer management and habitat uh, and learn about events near you, all kind of stuff. So that's a great way to to sort of uh, get your toe in the water with QDMA. Well, Lindsay, once again, we appreciate you coming on and appreciate your time and I uh, hope everything's going great for you guys down there. We've got a lot in common this year with sending our daughters off to college, so I'm looking forward to that's right. following along with that also. Yeah, that's right. Congratulations to your daughter as well on graduation. So Thank you. Same to yours. No, listen, I've enjoyed it. Thank you all so much, Jared, Brian. Thank you so much for having me back. Uh, always love talking with you guys and, and especially here on the podcast, especially these topics. So I look forward to doing it again. Awesome. Well, thank you, Lindsay. Really appreciate your time, and it was it was a, it was our pleasure. And uh, another great episode here for the listeners too. So thank you, and we'll keep in touch, sir. All right, y'all take care. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for coming on the show once again. Really happy to have you, and thank you for the great podcast we just recorded with you. Really appreciate it. Everybody else, thank you, the listeners, for coming back. We can't do it without you guys. Please check us out online. Uh, YouTube, we've got a bunch of videos up there, habitatpodcast.com, uh, our Facebook, our Instagram. Uh, follow along. You know, we put stuff up there every single day on Facebook and Instagram. Love to have you guys follow along and, and show us what you're up to. I mean, honestly, we kind of get bored talking with ourselves all the time. I'd rather hear what you guys are doing and see what's going on. So check that out on our social and online. want to thank Packer Max Cultipackers, HuntWise. Killer Food Plots, 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, Stony Creek Realty. Thank you all for supporting us once again on the Habitat Podcast. We're going to keep coming out with a bunch of great episodes, guys. Stay tuned. You can find us online or all of our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Everywhere you look for a podcast, we should be there. Thank you so much. We'll be back soon with another great episode for you guys as we become better habitat managers. Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.